Josh called me and said, Mom, somebody instant messaged me. Asking, you know, are you Sean's brother? And I'm like, yeah, why? Like, what's going on? She claims to be Sean's friend. Saying about how he overdosed. Uh, he's, he's in an ambulance right now going to the hospital. And I'm like, who are you? Like, is this real? They were in the McDonald's. And he had called a couple times. I, I even hear him tell Jim, I'm going to the bathroom. And all of a sudden, there was nothing. There was no bang. There was no dropping of the phone. And it was like, Sean, Sean, hello, hello. You know, kind of looking at my phone. But they were both still connected, the phones. And I maybe... 20 seconds I sat there going hello hello and it was just complete silence and Josh said mom he's gone I didn't know what he meant at first he said he's gone and he started crying and then I knew what he meant and I just started screaming I just kept saying no I just collapsed on the step Screaming. In the summer of 2019, I got a call from a woman who identified herself as Marianne Sinisi. She wanted to talk to me about her son, Sean, and what had happened just a year earlier when Sean was found unconscious on the floor of a McDonald's bathroom in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Sean died that night of an overdose. He was just 26 years old. Marianne sounded somewhat frantic on the phone that day as she described to me what had happened to her youngest child. She had reached out to share her story because Sean had also been a victim. A victim of a man who is now one of the most well-known serial pedophiles, Jerry Sandusky. And for more now, we turn to Sarah Gannam, reporter for the Patriot News in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She broke the story about the grand jury probe into Sandusky back in March. She is also a graduate of Penn State. And Sarah Gannam, thank you for joining us. News of allegations of Jerry Sandusky first broke in March of 2011, when I reported the very first story detailing the criminal investigation into Sandusky's crimes. Seven months later, the grand jury presented its charges. The 67-year-old Sandusky is charged with sexually abusing eight boys over 15 years, from 1994 to 2009. For 23 years, Jerry Sandusky served as defensive coordinator for the Penn State Nittany Lions. Now he's out on bail and defending himself against charges he sexually abused young boys, one as young as eight years old. And until his conviction in the summer of 2012, Sandusky and Penn State were a huge story. Jerry Sandusky jeered as he headed to county jail, his hands cuffed, the first night of the rest of his life behind bars, the jury convicting him of 45 counts of abusing little boys. And the sexual abuse scandal that is rocking Penn State University and its renowned football program. The accusations against Sandusky threatened to dim the legacy of Penn State football, which was a $73 million a year business at the time of Sandusky's arrest. 
Sandusky's case led to the firing of Penn State's beloved head coach, Joe Paterno. There was denial, disbelief, and anger. A lot of anger. Thousands of students jammed downtown streets, overturning a TV news truck, knocking over light poles, and throwing rocks at police. Tears were in my eyes. He's done so much for our university. We're in support of our school. We're in support of Joe Paul. We think it's absolutely ridiculous that he got fired over this sort of situation. So it makes sense that a lot of the focus on this story has been about the fallout of what happened to Sandusky and the folks around him. The people at Penn State, where he coached, and the people at his charity, The Second Mile. That's where a lot of my focus has been over the years, too. When Sandusky was sentenced in 2012, it felt like the story was over. The bad guy had gone to jail. Justice had been served. And we all moved on. But the story that Marianne told me on the phone that day, it focused on a different kind of fallout. Her son's life after the abuse stopped. I had never heard of Sean Sinisi before Marianne called me. He wasn't one of the victims in the highly publicized criminal case. But I had always known the number of victims extended far beyond the 10 that the state built its case around. Dozens more had come forward over the years, and I often thought about how many victims we might never know about. Victims like Sean. I mean, who's Sean? Why would anybody believe him? He's somebody that's just using drugs and getting in trouble. Jerry Sandusky's conviction was a punishment for what he had done, and it ensured that he could not harm any other children. But it couldn't undo the abuse or the consequences and the myriad of ways that it would manifest in his victims' lives. As Marianne relayed her son's story to me, I realized this was a major gap in our reporting, the profound failure of our society to help trauma victims. It's something we don't talk about enough, the lifelong struggle of victims to cope with what happened and then to get the help that they need and will continue to need. And what happens when they can't find that help? In so many ways, Sean Sinisi was a textbook abuse victim. He was ashamed, confused, angry, unable to admit or discuss what had happened. He was a child who seemingly overnight went from a happy-go-lucky and outgoing kid to a quiet, distant, and then troubled young man. He began to escape his pain and bury his memories of abuse with drugs and alcohol. He became an addict. And when his addiction led him down a darker path, he was given yet another label. Criminal. And those labels, they impacted the quality of his health care, and they changed the way that society saw him as a person. The empathy that would have been afforded to Sean as a victim was lessened because he was now labeled an addict and a criminal. I think if compassion was part of treatment, how, how different that could be. I mean, I, I don't know any other disease that's treated in this way. There's always compassion, and, and it doesn't matter, you know, if you smoked a pack a day, five packs a day, and you get lung cancer, you're treated with some compassion, love, and understanding 
but not this. This disease is not treated that way. They just lump you all and say that you chose this. You chose to be an addict. You chose to, to use these drugs. So you deserve the punishment that you're getting and the treatment you're getting in the world. Long before she ever found my number, Marianne had been fighting with everything she had to try to get help for her son. Trying to get him sober, trying to find him support and therapy, to scrape together money and resources where there were none, to keep her son alive. But a broken rehabilitation system and easy access to narcotics got in the way of almost every effort. Sean's life, from the time he was a teenager until the day he overdosed, was a merry-go-round of drug court and treatment, halfway houses, relapses, jail. And, as his mother described this cycle to me, it was clear that she felt it was all designed to shame him for his addiction and punish him for using drugs. There was no space or real concern for the helpless boy who had been violated by a predator. Not even at the expensive rehab facility that was supposed to finally, after all those years, treat the underlying trauma of the sexual abuse. The Meadows was, was so pumped up to us that that was like a dream. I looked at the facility and to look at people that were on the panel, the board, all that stuff, and to see, oh God, they get it. He, this guy wrote a book on how Sexual abuse changes your, the chemical makeup of your brain, and then you add on top of it addiction. These people really, really get it. This is gonna be it. This is the golden key we've been waiting for. That's how we felt. After more than a decade of addiction, bouncing between more than 10 facilities trying to get help, Sean was finally admitted to a high-end rehab facility in Arizona called The Meadows. It touts itself as the most trusted name in trauma and addiction treatment. It's one of those places that celebrities and the uber-rich go, where the price tag alone implies the best doctors and the best service. The Sinises are not rich, far from it. Marianne cleans houses. Her husband Mike is a truck driver. They have lived a modest but comfortable life, raising their two sons in Altoona, Pennsylvania, in the shadow of Penn State University. It had taken them years to get their son into a place like the Meadows, a place that would treat Sean's underlying trauma along with his addiction. On August 26, 2018, Marianne and her husband watched their son Sean get on a plane bound for Phoenix, hoping they would finally find a way out of this nightmare they had all been living. They were nervous, but excited about what 30 days at the Meadows could do for their struggling son. I didn't think I'd hear from him again until, you know, maybe three days or whatever. But he actually called again that night and said, I'm in the building, I'm in the nursing, and they said I could call and check in. And so we both lay our heads down and think for the first time that we can actually possibly sleep. But a week later, Sean was abruptly kicked out of the treatment facility. The Meadows put him back on a plane to Pittsburgh, but he had no safe destination lined up, no place to go. He spent the first night sleeping in a car that he found unlocked, and less than 24 hours after landing, Sean was found on the floor of the McDonald's bathroom. In his wallet were two used packs of heroin. 
he was 26 years old. As someone who has followed the Sandusky story since the beginning, I recognized immediately that Sean's death marked a grim milestone, a fatality stemming from Jerry Sandusky's abuse. Marianne had sought me out because she still really did not know what happened to her son in his final days, and she said the Meadows had shut her out. When Sean died, nobody from that facility even reached out to me. And how many years later? Still nothing. And Marianne understandably wanted answers. How could this have happened? How could the system be so stacked against people like her son? And what exactly happened in that last week of his life? For the last two years, I've been trying to help her figure that out. Like, you felt like like nothing about his life was handled properly lately, and then his death wasn't handled properly either. Right, I guess living through all of that and having all that disappointment was just excruciating on a daily basis. But when he died, yes, I felt like, you know, the way everything went down that day, I'm Sarah Gannam, and this is the mayor of Maple Avenue. Jerry Sandusky's crimes against children have rocked Penn State with fallout for a decade now. It's one of the largest failures in collegiate history. But this is not a story about Jerry Sandusky or about Penn State. This is a story about trauma, about aftermath about a life that was ruined, about drugs and addiction and the misconceptions surrounding them, about a broken rehabilitation system. It's a story about the complicated relationships between mothers and their children and about the lengths that we will go to to try to save those who we love and the heartbreak that's tied up in not being able to do so. Over the course of this series, I will tell you the story of Sean Sinisi and what I've learned about how the healthcare and justice systems that are designed to rehabilitate people like Sean instead failed him over and over again, and how they fail many others just like him. He was always happy, you know, always laughing, smiling. I mean, they called him like the mayor of the neighborhood, you know, Maple Avenue. He was the mayor of Maple Avenue. It just didn't make sense to me whatsoever. Eventually, the counselor just said to me, look, he's either gonna walk down the street like he should or he's gonna go down the alley. That doctor should be held accountable, that's disgusting. We've had so little respect, both for people who are suffering from addiction and those who treat it. It's probably a case study in what not to do in terms of garnering cooperation. And listen, they still are using these tactics. You didn't do an x-ray. You didn't do an MRI. Hell, you didn't even send him to a chiropractor. You just gave him neuron. And she said, well, he said he has back pain. That's where the red flags really started coming. If someone has provided a medication or takes a medication, it continues that assault on the part of the brain associated with addiction. There isn't true recovery and it can't be had. It's just still, you know, smoldering along. We just kept saying the same thing. It's just trading one drug for another. We debated here whether you should have to have a high school education 
in order to treat addiction. What other life-threatening illness would you ever have that debate about, and whether your provider should have graduated from high school? Let's throw a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound and hope it works. I mean, it makes no sense. And my words to him were, let me guess, you hope he dies before then, so that's one less inmate that you have. Because there's not a chance in hell he's going to be able to do this by himself. You know it, and I know it. He needs help. They did nothing to help aid in his own understanding of his traumatic responses or to heal it. He was just paranoid, so paranoid. He was kept staring out the window and saying, they're coming for me, and did you bring them here? What an abnormal life. He had to live because he had an addiction. It's just heartbreaking, it really is. I feel like I just threw him in the ocean and said, swim to the other side. He was sitting on a chair and I went over and I put my arms around him and I said, Sean, when are you gonna stop this stuff? It's not that easy, Aunt Deb, it's not easy. I just said, you're killing yourself. I said, Sean, you've gotta stop. Aunt Deb, if it was that easy, we'd all stop. I said, I just, I'd like to know why. Why would you have never told me? And then when he looked at me, he did say, I don't know, I guess a part of me blamed you because you're my mom and you're supposed to protect me. And I can remember Sean breaking down and crying and asking me what's wrong with him. And I just said, I don't know, but you have to tell me. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, at Cedar Production, and in partnership with PenLive and Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center for Local Reporting. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. Sound design, mixing, and mastering for this episode were done by Ryan Ross Smith. Our theme music was composed by Pete Reedman, with additional music by Alexander Ritchie and Ryan Ross Smith. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavie-Heaton, Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammontree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. To see extras like slideshows, interactive spaces, and written transcripts, visit our website at www.themayorofmapleavenue.com.